Welcome back to another episode of the Overshift Pod. The Overshift Pod is a weekly baseball podcast exclusively on Spotify, where I, your host Noah, will be diving deep into multiple topics around the game of baseball. I will be going over top prospects that I've been watching. Okay, and to get into our first topic, I'm going to give you guys some games to watch next weekend, um, starting Thursday, September 9th, going into Sunday, September 12th. And these are not necessarily games that I will be watching because, as most of you know, the NFL season starts Thursday. College football is on Saturday, and I am high on that, uh, on the college football fever. I have that right now, and there's more NFL on Sunday. I have my grandmother's birthday party, so I don't know if I'll be watching all these games, but I encourage you to, especially if you're not a football fan. But starting on Thursday... I hope I can watch this at 1.15 p.m. Eastern Time. Um, the Dodgers will be in St. Louis for what could be Albert Pujols' last game in Bush Stadium, and it's going to be an amazing moment because they're going to have to give him an at-bat, right? Um, and it's my first day of school. I just hope that I'm able to watch that. Um Watch his last at bat live. That would be really cool. His last at bat in Bush Stadium, most likely. His wife said that he was retiring before the year, but I don't know if it's really official. And also, um, I'm not like if he comes back and goes to an NL team um, in the off season, it could he could play he would play it there again as long as he was healthy for that series. But if he goes to an AL team to be a DH, which is a little more likely if the universal DH doesn't get added, then this is probably his last game in Bush Stadium. So it's going to be a really amazing moment. Just encourage you guys all to watch it. Now, later that day at 3.37 p.m. Eastern, we've got the White Sox in Oakland. Sean and I on the bump. It's going to be a good game, I think. Um, A's are kind of skidding recently. But two of the top teams in the AL in Oakland, one of their best pitchers on the mound, probably their number two or three. Um, just another good game to watch. You can, that game's going to finish before the football starts, so you've got that. And then at night, Toronto versus the Yankees in New York. Jose Brios, my favorite pitcher in the whole league um, to watch. Talk about that a little later. But he is going against the Yankees, one of the best lineups in baseball. Playoff implications for both teams. Yankees skidding recently. Blue Jays on the rise. So that should be a very, that should be a good game. Um, but it does start at 7. I think football, Bucks Cowboys kicks off about 8.20. So I don't know how much of that game I will be watching myself. But I encourage you to. And then Friday... The White Sox face off against Boston. They return home to host Boston. Um, 8-10 Eastern. Great Friday night game against, again, two top teams in the AL. The White Sox continue to face more tough competition down the stretch of the season. And they're one of the elite. In my opinion, they might be the best team in the AL. So that should should be fun to watch. Now heading into Saturday, the 11th. Um, again, this is a game that, with Michigan playing at eight on national television, I'll probably only watch the first two, three innings of this. It's also a Saturday night, so I don't even know if I'll be at home. But we've got Cincinnati in St. Louis, two NL division rivals. They're not going to win the division, either of them, but they they're both, both have wild card hopes. Um, so that's huge. And Castillo's on the bump going against a good lineup, so that should be fun. I love Castillo, Luis Castillo of the Reds. Um, that should be a, a, a good matchup with playoff implications. And then Sunday, we do have at 8-10, we do have the Mets and Yankees on Sunday Night Baseball. Probably, I'm not going to watch that. I'm going to be completely honest. Can't stand either of those teams, so 
who am I going to root for? And there's going to be football on. So, yeah, I'm just not going to watch that game. But something to watch for on Sunday is I think Shohei might be pitching Sunday. I could be wrong about this. He got scratched from his last start after getting hit in the hand. I'm not really sure what his timetable for return is or when he's pitching, but he might. I think he might be pitching that Sunday. And if he does, and I'll probably tweet about it if he is, um, that's definitely a game to watch. 2:10 Eastern. He's in Houston going against a good lineup. Um, but again, it's Sunday. That's the exact time of my grandmother's birthday party, and the Eagles are going to be on. So I'm just I'm not going to watch that, but I encourage you guys to. Um, and yeah, that's it. That's those are the games that I'm watching. I encourage you to watch them along with me. Um, and just enjoy this stretch of September where we're going to get a lot of good baseball games with good teams with playoff implications. It's cherish it, right? Also get to see maybe some young guys called up, maybe. So just, yeah, I'm looking forward to September baseball as you should too. So now I want to get into our next segment where I'm going to talk about some recent, something that happened a little recently, and that is the Mets players showing their disappointment, annoyance with the fans' reaction to them just being bad. Let's just put it out there. For those of you who aren't familiar with what happened, probably about a week ago by the time that you're listening to this podcast, Baez, Javi Baez, was asked in an interview about a celebration that him and Francisco Lindor had been doing, where they kind of looked at each other and would give the thumbs down after, like, a hit. If one was in the dugout and one, like, got a double, right? Javi would look at give a double thumbs down. Excuse me. So about a week ago, Javi Baez was asked about that, and he said, it's because, like, the fans boo them, and that's, like, their reaction. Basically, what you need to take away is that they're mocking the fans. They're mocking the fans who are not supporting them, but they shouldn't be, right? You're, we're talking about a team here that was in first place for three full months, almost. It started early May, I want to say. And then, I believe May 2nd or 3rd, if we're being exact. And then extended into late July, then typical Mets fashion, Jake Graham goes on the aisle. Francesco Lindor goes on the aisle. But to satisfy, to appease Francesco Lindor, thinking that you're still going to get in, you just trade for Javi Baez, give up a pretty, your first round pick last year, didn't sign your first round pick this year. Like, what is this? What is this? Right? But then... It's not even that you traded for Javi Baez at the deadline. But, like, well, it is that. But trading for Javi Baez is, like, he's an expiring contract. And I know that they think that they can bring him back. But I don't think they will. I think he'll be demanding too much money. They think that once he gets a taste of playing with Lindor, he'll come back on a discount. And he'll come back to play second. But... I don't think that's what's going to happen. I think he's probably going to go back to Chicago, if we're being honest. But, anyways, they bring in Javi Baez, but that's all they do. He's on an expiring deal. He's best friends with Lindor, but you don't get any bullpen help. Just picked up Brad Hand, who's god-awful. Jacob DeGrom's on the aisle. I know Stroman and Taiwan Walker are looking great, but you can still trade for pitching help, right? If you're really going to go all in, go all in. I never thought that they should have bought, but if you're going to buy, buy. And also never sit. If you're at a deadline and you're sitting, what are you doing, right? You buy or you sell, and you do it to the most extreme that you can. People aren't going to like the Nationals, but watch. In two years, when they bring, when Scherzer's playing for them again, and it's at the front of the rotation. Scherzer, Josiah Gray, and Steven Strasburg thrown to a top five catch in baseball in Kiebert Ruiz. 
with Juan Soto and Josh Bell and all these other guys that are already on the team, and they're back in contention, who's going to be laughing that, right? You buy or you sell, and you do it to the most extreme that you can. That's my take on how you should approach the deadline. So they do terrible at the deadline. They lose first place, get swept in the three-game series here at Citizens Bank Park. I was lucky enough to be at the Friday night game. And then they get mad at their fans for booing them, so they retaliate, I guess, with this stupid celebration. There was other players other than Baez and Lindor, I think. Maybe Pilar? Maybe VR? I don't know. But those are the two main ones, and they're two key players on the team. So, in my opinion, and I don't like Baez, and I do like Lindor, this is more on Lindor than it is on Baez, because Lindor is the leader, right? Baez was brought into New York for Lindor. Don't understand it, but that's why it was done. Lindor needs to hold the clubhouse responsible. I understand that Baez is his friend, right? But it's Lindor's job not to be caught up in these stupid celebrations with Baez and to be instead holding the team, including himself and Baez, accountable for not making stupid mistakes like this. Because I'll tell you what happens. If the whole team gets turned on by the fans and you somehow get into a playoff game at home, which, by the way, they're not going to because they're a joke of a franchise. If you somehow do that, What's going to happen? It's not going to feel like a home game. That's what's going to happen. I don't care if it's Phillies fans driving up and buying the tickets instead, or if it's Mets fans buying the tickets and booing their own team. If If the fans don't support the team, every game is a road game. So you can't, you have to. I understand there's a love-hate, like, back and forth, right? They're going to boo you. But you can't let stuff like this happen. And this is mostly on Lindor because, again, even if it was on Baez, Baez was brought in for him, and he's the leader, so he needs to be holding them accountable. Also, I understand Baez is his friend, but he needs to be thinking about the Mets, not Team Puerto Rico. He can't be thinking about his bond with Baez here. You've got to be thinking about the team. And so, yeah, that's my thoughts. Overview of what happened. Kind of my opinion on it. Um, I kind of, I guess, had the same reaction as the general public, although my obvious blame for Lindor that not a lot of other people are having. Because Lindor's a likable guy, and Baez is a hateable guy, and that's why I hate Baez and I like Lindor, right? <sighs> but... Yeah, I do think this is more on Baez. I think this is more on Lindor than it is on Baez. And I don't think people are ready to accept that. So now, to get into the next topic that I want to talk about, I'm just going to start it off by saying this. Julio Rodriguez is the next King Griffey Jr. And clip that, post that, Get me absolutely killed on Twitter. I don't care. I said what I said. And just listen to what I have to say next. He is nowhere near as good as Ken Griffey Jr. was. I'd say probably the only players comparable to a Griffey Jr. are Trout, maybe Soto, maybe Acuna. Maybe. Julio Rodriguez probably won't get to that point in his career. I'd love to see him. I'd love to see it. Probably not going to happen. But here's what will happen. He is the next face of the Mariners. He is going to finally bring Seattle back to the playoffs. They might even do it this year. Doubt it, though. He's going to finally bring them back to being the best team in the division, probably. Hopefully in about two years. He might even bring them all the way to their first ever World Series championship. Something that Griffey never even did. And I just want to give you guys who maybe don't 
follow minor league baseball or prospects, kind of just a little insight into what you're going to see from this kid, whether he, when he comes up next year, because he's not going to come up in September. I would have loved to see him come up in September. I was advocating for that on my last podcast episode, which you should have already listened to by now, but we'll talk about that later. So, this is a guy that we're probably going to watch next year. I don't know about the start of the year. I don't know. It depends on what they decide to do in the off season, how Kelnick performs, how what happens with Hanniger, right? It a lot really depends on if we see him at the beginning of the year or about halfway through, but he will come up next year at some point. So he's a big do it all player. He he's a four tool player in my eyes because he. At his size, which is 6'3", 180, that's roughly my size. Um, and I'm slow as shit. He's not that fat. Like, for his size, he is, but he's never going to be, like, a huge threat on the base pads, right? Other than that, he kind of just does it all, right? He doesn't have, like, the, the Robles, Pache, Robert, Herrera... Bellinger range out in center field. So that's why, but he has a strong arm. He plays the ball well. He takes good routes. That's why people think that he's probably going to be moved to right or left field at some point. I would probably agree with that assessment. But he's still going to be maybe a gold glove level defender in right or left field. I don't know if he wouldn't center necessarily. And outside of that, from the right side, he's just one of the best righty hitters that that you're going to see, right? He's just, he's able to kill the ball to all parts of the field. He's got great power. He can put it on the ground if he needs to. He's got everything you want from a right-handed hitter going forward, right? into this next decade of baseball, whatever it may bring, he is the guy that you want from the right side. I'm telling you that right now. He's the guy that you want from the right side. Um, And yeah, that's just kind of all I have to say about him. Um, He's got a good arm. Pretty, he's a good defender in, in the corners. He's got, he's a great hitter from the right side. And... On the base pass, he's not much of a threat, but that doesn't prevent him from being the second-ranked prospect in baseball and one of my personal favorites. So, let's get into my next topic. I'm going to be ranking my six favorite pitchers to watch in the current MLB. Um, these guys are all starters. And none of them are on the Phillies, right? Because if we're being honest, except for every day in Yell and Ian Kennedy, I enjoy watching every pitcher on the Phillies more than basically all of these guys. So I figured it would be kind of stupid to include them, but I do want to give a shout out to one of the most underrated pitchers in the league, Zach Eflin, on the Phillies. He won't be on this list, but he's... He might be my favorite Philly pitcher to watch. He's just, he's really grown from a couple years ago being the fourth, fifth guy going up and down. Like, is he going to be able to sustain this? Is he, And then all of a sudden, he's the fourth man now. <laughs> Actually, he's probably better than Nola right now. So he might be the second man now, but... um. Yeah, he's he's the four-man in our rotation after the Gibson trade, and he's amazing in that slot. He was fine in the three-slot, in my opinion. We just needed another guy like him to slide into the four. And again, Ranger Shore is another guy from our staff that I love, but let's get into it. Number six, Luis Castillo of the Reds. Great young pitcher, kind of cooked my team about two, three weeks ago. But I love 
the way that he just attacks guys. He started off kind of rough, right? But he won, like, oh, I don't even know what it's called, like, Arm of the Month. It's like the Arm Award. Oh, can't remember what it's called. The Like, MLB Central show that I watch on MLB Network every day, 10 to 1, usually. Stop watching around, like, 11. First hour of it is always great, even into 11.30 sometimes. Third hour is, like, always just chopping up the first two. But I have fun watching that when I'm not at school, right, so over the summer. That's a really good baseball show for me. I know people are critical of MLB Network in general, but I enjoy that show. Anyway, they give out, like, a best pitcher of the month um, each month, and I think he won the July one. Yeah, because they just gave out the August one the other day. I forget who it was, too. But, yeah, so I just, he's really picked it up of late. He's been dominant of late. He's he's just a young pitcher who, with good life on a team that I can root for, it's fun to watch. I don't really have much else to say. And, yeah, that's Luis Castillo. So at five is Jacob deGrom. It's hard, like, to root for him, but as someone who plays baseball, like, he's just so good that, I, I, like, what am I supposed to say, right? He's just so fun to watch because he's so good, right? He's got a fastball that, like, touches three digits, like, late into games. He can still be upper 90s with it. He's got... Nice hard slider, a nice curve. I think he throws a two seam, maybe a change up. He's just clear, clearly the best pitcher in baseball when he's healthy. Um, and that's been a huge problem, but just watching him dominate, because every time he's out of there, it's domination. Watching him dominate is one of the most fun things. It's almost like Shohei. Or like, if my dad is flipping around like during a Phillies game commercial and a lands on MLB tonight and Shohei is at the plate, even if he thinks that the Phillies game is back, he doesn't care. He's gonna he's gonna stay on Shohei because it's Shohei. It's the same way, at least for me, maybe not for him, with Jacob DeGrom, right? He he's just so dominant that all eyes are on him, and he's so fun to watch. So then, again, kind of just talking about him, but at four is Shohei Otani. He's got a nice fastball and one of the, maybe the best pitch in baseball, maybe, in the splitter. His splitter is nasty. No one can hit it. If he can attack early and get that first pitch strike, he's unhittable with that fastball as long as he can locate it. He can get those first pitch strikes pretty easily. And he can, like, once he gets ahead, his stuff, his breaking balls are so nasty. And he also still has that electric fastball in his back pocket that once he gets ahead in the once he gets ahead in the count, it's over. And he's also mashing, he might get 50 home runs. So is he doing that while he's on the mound? No, but it adds to the intrigue, you know? It, like, adds to the the enjoyment. Um, It makes him more intriguing, is what I was trying to say. So, yeah, that's number four. And number three is Marcus Stroman. <sighs> might not be getting dinner. If my dad hears this, putting two mats on this list. But, hey, they're fun to watch. What can I say? Um, I've always loved Stroman. He's like 5'6", five, 5'7". Five, he's got a ton of energy. He There's a four-seam, kind of, but he, he's really all about the sinker and his off-speed pitches, and he just... He attacks well, and I know he he'll struggle here, struggle there, but he's just uh, sometimes he's just so dominant, and it's so fun to watch because I know he takes pride in the game, 
and the Mets fans kind of kind of hate him. I hope he leaves because I like watching him and I don't like watching them. If I want to watch one of his games, that means I have to watch a Mets game. I don't want to have to do that. I don't want to have to do that. I'd way rather watch a Tigers game, a Blue Jays game, a Guardians game, a White Sox game, a Mariners game, literally anyone else. I'd, uh, Yankees, maybe, I don't know. Regardless, I want to see him get out of New York. The fans don't like him, so I wouldn't be surprised if he leaves, but he's one of my favorite to watch. Number three, to be exact, and then number two is Luis G of the, of the New York Yankees. So, continue, just pour it on with guys on teams that I hate, but... What I like about this kid is he had a dominant debut, and I was like, who is this? Like, because, like, I saw people on Twitter being like, oh, yeah. Like, they didn't even know who this kid was, right? So I just watched the whole game, then I watched all his fastballs here. All his, I just went over, and then I eventually tweeted out a thread that, like, no one saw. But I tweeted out a thread, like, going over, like, kind of letting people know through that game what he was as a pitcher. So I know him as a pitcher very well, right? Three pitches, change-up slider, fastball. I don't even, he's currently in the minors, too, which stinks. But fastball, change-up slider. Slider and change-up, they're both good, but, like, it kind of sometimes gives me the same feeling that Jose Alvarado does in where it's, like, He'll throw a pitch, and a guy will foul it off. He'll throw a sinker at 97, guy fouls it off. Cutter at 95, guy fouls it off. Sinker at 100, guy fouls it off. And it's like, go to your curveball. Which now, Alvarado started to throw. But one of the thing about, geez, he doesn't have like a swing and miss pitch. Right? Like, the slider is almost all vertical movement. And it does have like nice bite to it, but it doesn't like have a... It's not like a huge swing and miss. He's going to get swing and miss with it, but he gets a lot, at least in the first game, because I just know almost all the at-bats. He got a lot of, like, especially from righties, they would just, like, freeze. Gets called strike with it. And that's nice to get that front door. But also, change-up's nice, and change-up's fast. It's, like, low 90s to where the point where pitching ninja was, like, is that even a change-up? I think that might be a sinker. And then... Because, like, StatCast thinks that some of them are sinkers, which is really annoying when I'm trying to watch through MLB.com's film room. Like, it's, like, Google Cloud, but it still uses, like, StatCast pitch tracking. It'll be like, oh, he only threw this many change-ups. But then he threw this many sinkers. They're only, like, one mile per hour off. So I know that they're the same pitch. And a Pitching Ninja literally froze. And it, it's a... Uh, circle change grip on, I think it was four seams, that, anyway, it's a change up, and it has a beautiful movement, but, again, it's not like, it's not the airbender, so he's not getting a ton of swing and misses with it, still a good pitch, fastball is the best pitch, um, when he throws arm side, it has a little bit of run, which helps, just a little bit of natural run off the plate, he probably pronates, that's my guess, um, he also has, when, but when he throws a glove side, and this could hurt him against lefties this is where he really needs to work like in in on lefties um it's straight it like it doesn't run because you don't want it to run back over the plate like zach wheeler early on everything he threw gloves i just ran back over the plate it's not what you want but it's really straight to the point where if a lefty is dialing in like i don't care if it's coming in at 97 if freddie freeman knows that 97 straight is coming in that's way easier to hit than 90 than his sinker, which is change up, which is 89-90 with movement, right? And then when he really elevates the fastball, it has that, like, rising action. It doesn't actually rise, but that's – I love watching him throw that high fastball because guys can't touch it. It's awesome. Um, but, yeah, that's Luis G. And then number one is Jose Barrios. I loved him when he was on the Twins – and now he's on the Blue Jays, so he gets, like, a couple more national TV games. And I just get to watch him more. I just see him covered more. He was talked about, like, a good amount in Minnesota. He's a dog. 
He's a horse. He'll go deep in the games. He'll throw 120 pitches if you ask him to. He, I watched his, like, press conference or, like, some video call. He was, like, crying when they told him that he was leaving Minnesota. And I don't think he's going to go back there. But, like, he struggles at times, but he's just, in the end, he's so good. He's just one of the best pitchers in the league. I love watching him on the Blue Jays because I can root for the Blue Jays. I'm already rooting for Vladdy Triple Crown, right? And Vladdy could also get the, this is, like, I've never heard anyone use this phrase, so I guess I'll coin it. The, the advanced, I guess I'll call it the advanced stat Triple Crown. Um, F-War, X-Woba, and WRC+. Plus. Um, Vladdy... He's, I think he's leading the league, the whole MLB in F-War, or wait, no, Shohei, of course, is leading in F-War, so he's not going to get that, but Shohei's no, I don't think Shohei's up there in X-War, but I don't know, regardless, Vladdy could get the real AL triple crown, I don't know, I don't, people don't really care about those stats anymore, that would still be fun, that's still fun, you know, for me at least, and Sorry, watching the Phillies game right now. Chisholm, leadoff, grand old double. Recording this on Friday. Um, but yeah, Jose Barrios is number one on my list. I love watching him. Just, he's a horse. He goes so, like, you can just keep using him and keep using him. And, like, if you're ever thinking that there's a guy who's going to pitch three times in a seven-game series, right, he's that guy. He's going to be the guy who... In three years in the World Series, he'll pitch game one, dominant. Game five, dominant. Game seven of the World Series, he'll come out of the bullpen and give you, like, three innings. After, like, you know, old Robbie Ray gives you, like, a decent four and a third, he'll give you three, and then you go to your closer, right? Whoever it may be at that point. Like, th- that's the type of guy you're ta- we're talking about here. He's so special. I love watching him in Toronto. I hope they extend him. Um, oh, come on, that was a strike. But, yeah, Jose Barrios is... My favorite picture to watch. Okay, and now into the second to last segment on today's episode. This is just something that I want to talk about. How Salvador Perez and in general veteran catchers are... Well, okay, let's just start off saying this. Salvador Perez is criminally overhated. Is he better than Yasmani Grandal, J.T. Real Muto, Will Smith? No. Is he better than Narvaez? No. But he's still one of the best hitters. I'm not saying he's like top 10 hitters, but he is a great hitter. And because he's a veteran catcher, people underrate how well he calls games. And that's something that no one ever values. And when talking about calling games, Yachty also gets no credit for this. You look at team pitching stats and you look at home runs allowed. And look at who's towards the bottom of runs and home runs allowed. And you see the Giants and you see the Cardinals are towards the bottom in stats like that, right? And it makes you think how great it is to have a veteran catcher. Like, obviously, if you're the Dodgers, it doesn't matter what pitches Will Smith is going to call if you have one of the greatest pitching staffs ever. Same with the Brewers, right? When your pitching is that good, it doesn't really matter. But for the Cardinals to be up there with Flaherty out, he hasn't really played this year. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Anyway, sorry. Philly's my own game. Just Kyle Gibson. <sighs> okay. Anyway. These veteran catchers call the game so well. Like, Buster Posey is by far the best example of this, but Yadi Molina also does a great job. He's helping, and, like, no one ever values this because there's no stat to track it, right? You want to say Posey's a great defender. People are going to be like, okay, what's your proof, right? You go out there, you bring up the fact that he's an elite framer because there's stats to track that. There's stats that track, StatCast tracks how fast and how accurately he throws, there's a caught stealing rate, there's block rate, there are all these stats that track all these different things that go into being a great defensive catcher, 
except for game managing. There's no way to track that, at least that I've come across. But, and partially it's because it's subjective, I guess. Like, oh, he calls a good game. Like, you're going to get to a point where you're in a certain count and someone thinks this pitch should be thrown, someone thinks this pitch should be thrown. But I guarantee you that with the right algorithm, it could be tracked to see who the best pitch callers are. And I would love to try to create a stat that does this. It would be very difficult. It would be very time consuming. But this is why if I have a young pitching staff like the Marlins, the Tigers, right? The number one catcher that I want on my team is Buster Posey because he's going to help them make good decisions when it comes to what pitches to throw, right? Like, he's bad for right now in the game that I'm watching. Jorge Alfaro, like, what's he going to do, right? Like, I know he's been playing for, like, four or five years maybe, but, like, does he, he doesn't have as great of an understanding. And I was watching in Austin Riley at that. They were breaking down on MLB Central. They were talking about... Mark DeRosa was talking about, oh yeah, any other pit, any other catcher would call a two-seam in here. But Buster Posey knows to go the slider away. And Austin Riley still pokes it the other way, but it is a great pitch call. They were like talking about Austin Riley. That was the point of the segment. But the understanding of a game, the understanding of what pitch to call when in certain situations is what makes Buster Posey arguably the best catcher in the league to me. Do I really believe that he's the best catcher? I guess, if I'm being honest, and, like, he can't play every day, right, and that hurts, he can't play every day behind the plate, but if Universal ZH or he's in the AL, right, he can play almost every day, he might not be playing every day behind the plate, but he can play almost every day, and he can play most of those behind the plate, and this is... I started off talking about Salvi Perez, but this is why Buster Posey might be the best catcher in the league, because this is something that no one ever values. And if I were to create a stat to track this, I feel like, and I don't know if I have the resources to go out and do this, but the best way to do it would probably be somehow through tracking of, like, for instance, just the game that I'm watching right now, Jorge Alfaro is at the plate, one-two count, Kyle Gibson's pitching. It looks like uh, they were going to call a change, but it looks like then Alfaro had to step out regardless. You can look at Alfaro and what pitches he hits early in the count, what pitches he hits late in the count versus righties. Gibson, he's facing right now, is a righty. And you can create Alfaro versus righties, and they got him with the slider in the dirt. Say, first pitch, you should go this. Second pitch, well, regardless of outcome, now maybe you should do this. Now maybe this. Now maybe, right? So if they can create, like, and then how directly a catcher follows the best way to get them out, I guess is how you would track that. But I don't have the resources to track that. Anyways, I can tell you right now, who would be number one on that list? Buster Posey. And that's why I think he might be the best catcher in the league. So, yeah. Thank you for for listening to my little tangent about veteran catchers. And now I'm going to go into my final and favorite segment of this episode. Defining the Phillies offseason in three words, or how I, if I were the GM, how the Phillies offseason, and what three words the Phillies offseason would be defined in. Retain. Develop. Marte. Those three words, in my opinion should explain our offseason. They should define to a T what we are looking to do this offseason, right? And let's start off with retain. Retain all our pitchers, except for Kennedy, to be honest, because I feel like Kennedy... um. I feel like we could let him walk, right? You can close by committee until the deadline and then figure out if you're for real or not, but I wouldn't bring back Neeris. I wouldn't bring back Bradley. I wouldn't bring back Eflin. 
people are talking about trading Nola. Maybe we just bring in a new pitching coach and just stop there. If we retain our pitching staff and we're healthy, we have a very good pitching staff. If Nola's at the top of his game, if Eflin's healthy, if Gibson's back with another year with JT behind the plate and you've got Wheeler pitching like a Cy Young candidate again, you've got Ranger Suarez being our fifth starter, you've got guys like Bradley Nearest, Alvarado out of the bullpen, hopefully a Saranthony, hopefully Bailey Falter, Connor Brogdon, all of these guys can make a top eight pitching staff, right? Do that until the deadline and um, maybe wherever Iglesias signs, maybe they don't end up being good. And you can trade for Rasiel Iglesias. You can trade for Ian Kennedy back again. You can trade for Craig Kimbrough. Like, you never, you just wait until the deadline to get a closer. There's no point in paying a closer because then if you get injured and you're not good, you trade him for a, a prospect. I'd rather trade an a prospect than potentially getting an a prospect and giving up on my season, right? I'd rather be on the receiving end of a Glaber Torres from for a Rollis Chapman deal, you know? Um, just laughing about how the Dodgers and Giants are 13 and a half off. On the on the second wild card, that I find that so funny. Um. So yeah, retain the pitching. The next thing is develop. I want to develop. Ideally, you develop everyone, right? Marshawn gets a little better. Boom gets a little better. Nikki Maton gets better. Oh, we have all these. No, let's be realistic here. There are two guys that we need to develop because I think they have the best potential. Um, obviously. Abel is really good about, I'm not really sure how to pronounce his name, which is sad. And Painter, I love Painter. Um, but, like, he was just our draft pick this year. Um, Mick was our draft pick last year. So, like, those guys, we wait on, you know? Those are guys, score, score, score. Okay, nice. 3-2. Oh, my God, why is McCutcheon so slow? Um, Sorry. Those are guys that are lower in the system. They're pitchers. Got a triple out of that? Nice. Um, those are guys lower in the system that are pitchers, that are young. They're going to be huge down the line. I'm not worried about those guys. I'm worried about Bryson Stott and Alec Boehm, right? How awesome would it be if that's our, if they're part of our starting lineup next year, right? That seems like a pipe dream, but let's, let's make it happen, right? Start out, boom, at third, maybe DH, if the universal DH goes into effect and start it short, right? And because of that, um, we need to trade DD. But I, it needs to be a huge thing to make sure that we do develop those guys, because we're talking about Stott here, a lefty hitting shortstop. He can give you everything that DD's giving you on none of the money. And continue to do it at a higher rate in about three years at a higher rate. And then for the next lot years after that, right? For a lot more years after that. So, yeah, I do think that we should trade DD. He's making about, I want to say, 18 mil next year. Um, so if you get that off the books, it opens up for free agency. Um He's actually batting right now. He's batting after Matt Veerling. That just tells you that he shouldn't be on our team anymore, right? That's kind of all I need to say. Um, so I think three, potentially a fourth, maybe the Angels would want him. I've talked about how I think from the Angels' perspective that could be a good trade. But I'm not really sure if they're looking at him. You know, I think if I were them, I would be. But I'm not sure if they are. But talk about it like this. Astros. Correa walks. I know you can maybe target an Eduardo Escobar at third. Um, and just move Bregman over to short, but you can also just trade for DD, right? Give up a mid-level prospect to take on the money. That's kind of the trade that I'm envisioning, right? Like, maybe a borderline top 20 prospect in an eh farm system. Um, the A's, I could also see them. They could need a shortstop. They could be willing to pay that money with, um, I don't know. 
I don't know if they're willing to pay that money. I'm going to be honest. We might have to pick up some of that salary. And part of the reason I want to trade him is because I don't want to have to pay the salary. But the A's could be a target. And the last one is the Reds because they need a shortstop. Castellanos is coming off the books. Doubt they'll go after a top-level shortstop. They could easily take him on. He'd fit into their lineup with Winker, Votto, Gregorius, that lefty power streak. Ooh, right? That's nice. That is nice. We could get, I guess Hines is too big of a, they're like number nine prospect. Maybe Reese Hines. Um, I really like a good, good third baseman who scouts are saying probably is going to end up in right or left. Maybe he could be the left fielder of the future. I don't know. No, I think he's too big of a, a fish to go to get back for Didi. I could be wrong. I don't really know what Didi's trade value is at that contract. But I'm thinking like a team that strikes out, that's willing to go after a big name for agent, but strikes out on the shortstop market. You know, there are a ton of shortstops out there. I'm also thinking maybe the Rangers, we could just give them Didi. Be like, eat this money for a year. You know? Um, but then the next thing, I would move on to the outfield, which needs to be defined by the word Marte. First thing, doesn't have to do with Marte, either of them. A little foreshadowing there. Uh, let, let Andrew McCutcheon walk. I think he has a team option of about 18 mil, but he's making 20 mil this year, right? So... Letting his 20 mil come off the books, letting Didi's 18 mil coming off the books, paying probably roughly 10 mil in AAV for next year to the re-signings of um, maybe a little less than 10, maybe around 8 mil to the re-signings of Eflin. I don't really know what their markets are. Maybe Eflin's going to make 8 mil. I'm not really sure. The re-signings of Eflin, Nearest, and Bradley, which I think need to happen. I'd, I'd be willing to do that for maybe 20 mil for all the guys. If we know that the tendonitis is fine, we get them locked up for multiple years, right? I'd be fine with that. Um, but I will say that we need to let Kutch walk too much money to pay him. And then we need to go out and we need to sign Starling Marte to a three-year $54 million deal. Front loaded a little. He's like already 30. I want to say 33. And that's kind of scary. I know that's scary. But we're talking about a guy who's stolen like 20 straight bases. His athleticism is not being hindered by his age, right? That's not a concern that you have. He's going to be, if we want him in center, he's going to be a gold glove now. He's going to be a good defender in center. But he's also been proven, like, if you're a center fielder, I can go get you, and then you have an off-season. You're going into the season knowing that you're going to be in the corner. You can be a good corner outfielder. There's no doubt about that in my mind. But him, he's also proven in the corner. So that's not something that you have to worry about, like, oh, are we sure that we can trust him if we need to slide him over there? For the-? No, you're fine with him there. And that kind of helps start to solidify your outfield. He replaces McCutcheon, but in a completely different role, right? He's going to put the ball in play. He's going to walk. He doesn't strike out a lot. He's fast. He's a great leadoff hitter. Um, maybe a two-hitter. I don't know where you'd put him in the lineup. But he would just be great in this lineup, you know? And then the next thing is trade for Cattell. I'd be willing to give a prospect pool of Morales, Garcia, Moniac, maybe even more. I don't know if that would do it, if that would be too much. I'm not really entirely sure how big of a prospect pool Cattell Marte commands, right? He's probably got like, I want to say he's got two years left of arbitration. I think he's going into year two of arbitration. He could be going into year one. I could be wrong about that. Um, We're talking about a guy who you can play him in center. You can play him in the corners. You can play him at second. You can play him at short. You could probably play, play him at third, right? And what I'm thinking about here is, in addition, I would like to sign a lefty outfield bet, either Eddie Rosario or Corey Dickerson, to just a small deal to be a good 
just lefty bad to add and, and have some defensive flexibility to play the outfield because, right, if we're talking about Bohm's not playing well defensively and we have a universal DH next year, right, let's just go under. Those are both things that we kind of assume are going to happen, if we're being honest, right? So we want Bohm in the DH hole. And and this is a good time to kind of review what our lineup would be, right? We'd have Bohm in the DH hole. We'd have JT behind the plate. Reese will be back at first. We'd have Gene. Gene, Gene, the hit machine. Hate the nickname. Love the player. At second base, we'd have, also in the infield, Bryson Stott. And this is where it kind of comes in, right? I'd, let's say we'd put him at short. Um... Starling Marte in center, we'll just say that for argument's sake. And Bryce Harper in in right, right? And now you get to a point with, you're going to give guys off days, so Torres and let's say Usain Rosario will be in the lineup enough regardless. But if you get to the point where Bohm's DHing, and you just want to be like, okay, um, we're going against a lefty. Let's put Torres at third and Cattell in left. Maybe Cattell in center, Starling in left. We're going against Dreddy. Let's put Eddie in left, Starling in center. Cattell at third. Maybe Cattell at second. Gene at third. Maybe Cattell at short. Stott at third. I'm not really sure. But Cattell, his ability to play infield and outfield would be huge for this team. Right? In scenarios like that, it gives us a ton of flexibility. I love our lineup there. We could also still have Brad Miller, Raphael Marchand. Maybe don't really want Travis Jankowski off the bench, but if we have to, okay. Um, maybe it'll be Matt Veerling. But yeah, I do want to, I said, trade Moniak for Cattell. Just sell the false hope of him. Sell his talent. We know he's never going to produce. Sell his talent and get him out of here. That's my thoughts on what the Phillies should do this offseason. I think that can make us legitimate contenders not only next year, but for years to come. That kind of solidifies us in the multi-year sense. And I think that's how we could potentially win the NL East. Maybe win the entire NL. And maybe, who knows, if things fall our way, that's maybe how we could win the World Series next year. Dave Dombrowski hired me. Thank you for listening to yet another episode of the Overshift Pod. Um, be sure to check out, be sure to follow the podcast here on Spotify. Be sure to follow the Twitter handle, the Overshift Pod. Be able, be sure to follow me on Twitter, Noah Knows Ball. Link is in the bio of the Overshift Pod, um, of their Twitter account. And just be sure to tune in next week for another great episode. Peace.